welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting? Episode 4, Leonardo da Vinci. Alright, so I'm going to start off by apologizing to everyone. There is a lot of Italian words and names in this, and I'm going to probably mispronounce them. Uh, Scott may have a little better grasp in that because it's kind of close to Spanish, isn't it? Yes, uh, Spanish and Italian, along with... Um, French and Portuguese are all Romance languages. They're all based on Latin. So okay. they do stay very close to each other. Right. So when I mispronounce something, if, if if you want to take the time and correct me, you can. Otherwise, out there, I'm sorry. I'm going to say things wrong. Um, we are going to discuss the life and times of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, we're going to lay this episode out a little bit different than we have in the past. In the past, where we've had several people we've talked about, we kind of go back and forth and, and do our thing. But this time around, I actually did a uh, quick study of Leonardo's history, his time during his actual life. And we're going to talk about that first, and then Scott will take over and talk more about how he has influenced modern times and influenced things going on today, or how he has been referenced and things like that. So the timeline of Leonardo da Vinci's life and accomplishments this will not cover everything, obviously. He did a lot in his life. Uh, probably won't even get close to covering everything that um, that you might know or might want to hear about. But if I don't copy, or if I copy, if I don't s- go through something that you think is important, definitely, you know, send us a, send us an email. Uh, find us on Facebook. You can do either one of those things, and we'll have all that information at the end of the podcast. Um, I chose items that I found to be interesting and important. Um, So we hope you enjoy today's episode. So let's start with, and this is something else that I found kind of interesting. So Leonardo da Vinci was born on April 15th, 1452. We are recording today, April 15th. And it's just happenstance. It's not like we planned that. I mean, you will not get this episode until May the 1st, but it's just kind of one of those things. It's kind of an interesting dink. Yeah, a little bit of serendipity, almost, that we're talking about him and celebrating him on his actual birthday. Correct. And so he was born in 1452 uh, in the Tuscan town of Vinci. His birth name was uh, Leonardo de Ser Pierre de, or da Vinci, meaning Leonardo, son of Messer Piero, from Vinci. He spent his first five years in the hamlet of Anciano, Anciano, in the home of his mother. Then from 1457, lived in the household of his father, grandparents, and uncle in the, sm- all in the small town of Vinci. Uh, his father was a notary, and his mother, Caterina, was a peasant girl. His parents never married. So I found that interesting, especially in the in the time. But as I read more and more, actually marriage wasn't that big of a thing then. No, especially so especially among the nobles. They would get married, but then it didn't really matter. So, though his father was a low-level 
noble, for lack of a better word. Um, he seems to have had the same, you know, uh, ideals of the way things worked. Right. Most of the times, especially in that time and culture, marriages were about family alliances, not so much about love or religion or um, the way to bring children and children oftentimes of marriages like that were seen more as pawns in the games of politics. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, the other thing you're going to notice about this is a lot of things say it happened on January 1st of a year. But in my research, it seems like they don't really know when it happened. It's more of a, it happened within this year. Now, there are some things that have specific dates, but for the most part, you're going to hear me say January 1st, year, whatever. Um, and there are some things that I have in here where there's two separate dates. There's two different sources that say, well, it happened now versus it happened at this date. So, And I bring that up because I'm going to start off that way. So January 1st, 1467 or April 14th, 1466, uh, Leonardo was apprenticed to the artist Andrea de Sion, known as Variochi or Variachi. Both uh, stories apprentice him to the same artist, and they both claim he was 15. Though if we want to get technical, April 14th would have made him only 14 for a day. Um, if we would go with the April 14th, 1466 date. Uh, they both agree he was sent to Florence for his apprenticeship. He was exposed to both theoretical training and a vast range of technical skills, including drafting, chemistry, metal metallurgy, metalworking, plaster casting, leatherworking, mechanics, and carpentry, as well as the artistic skills of drawing, painting, sculpting, and modeling. Leonardo collaborated with Variachi on his Baptism of Christ payment, or painting. So, I mean, if we just look at what he did as his time as an apprentice, he had to have never slept. He had to have been a genius. Uh, and he had to have just been so able to absorb things and then to use them later in life because he used most of these things. So uh, we then move on to January of 1472. Uh, the 20-year-old Leonardo is accepted into the Painters Guild of Florence um, after five years of apprenticeship, which seems to be pretty standard from what I read. You did your five years of apprenticeship and then you were... a, a accepted into the guild and you were awarded your own studio so um that happened then in october of 1472 or and this is one of those odd ones january of 1478 uh the annunciation is painted uh this work initially credited to da vinci is now believed to have been painted by lorenzo de credi uh lorenzo de credi was an italian renaissance painter and sculptor uh, he first influenced Leonardo da Vinci and then was greatly influenced by him. Uh, the painting shows an angel holding a Madonna lily, a symbol of Mary's virginity and of the city of Florence. It is supposed that the artist, either da Vinci or de Credi, originally copied the wings from those of a bird in flight, but they have since been lengthened by a later artist. Now, I don't know, I, I believe that's something that happened quite a bit with Renaissance art. It was done by a master or done by somebody, and then somebody else thought they could do it better and just kind of painted on top of it or painted over things. Yes, and actually um, properly stretched canvases or a, other medium that would be used for art were oftentimes at a premium. And so you would 
a lot of times, and uh, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we uh, see a rise in discovered art where there's a work that the paint is starting to peel or something and they bring it in to be restored and the art restorer will scan it or something and discover if there's a painting underneath it. Right. And so they'll talk to the person and say, well, we think you've got a more important painting underneath and they carefully clean the surface layer off and they find something else underneath. What with the, um, the work being done by different people, oftentimes when you had an apprentice who showed a lot of promise, the master of the studio would allow the apprentice to do a large part of the work and then they'd add a couple of finishing touches and then the master would sign it but then there would often you see it more in sculpture and metal casting more so than painting but you'd have the stamp or imprint of the master with a little small extra stamp to indicate that the majority of the work was done by the apprentice so kind of like a cc right <laughs> Um, you know, and it's amazing too, because they can look at these paintings now, and this is something that I've seen and, and, and read about, and it's amazing. They can look at a painting and go, well, we know Da Vinci did this portion of it because of the strokes and the brush and how he did it. And this was probably done by this apprentice. And to me, that's amazing because I look at a painting and I'm like, oh, there's brush strokes. You can see the, especially with stuff done in oil and things like that, you can really see the brush strokes, but I'm like... How can you tell from just, you know, some little curly cue or something that, you know, this was Da Vinci's work and this was, you know, Apprentice A, you know, and that always, to me, I mean, the fact that they can go into history and pick those things out and learn from that is amazing. I don't have the, uh, I don't have the, uh, the personality for that, but it's, a, it's amazing. And I said that a lot. I said it was amazing a lot. Yes. Well, I mean, everybody has their own talent and their own interest in things. I mean, think about the things in your life that you have spent inordinate amount of hours looking into and reading and studying and playing and doing things with. Other people who haven't put that amount of time in might look at you because somebody says, well, what's the armor class of this particular thing? And you just go, oh, it's this. And they're like, how do you know that without flipping through five different books or pulling it up on the computer. I suppose. Well, I just know. It, I've been doing it. Know yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't everybody know the armor class of a standard orc? I mean, come on. It's 14. <laughs> <laughs> so now, anyway. is that 3-5 or 5th ed? That is 3-5. Okay. I, uh, I do not know 5th ed that well. Yet. Yeah, give me time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on. November 1st, 1472, at the still at the age of 20, Leonardo qualified as a master in the Guild of St. Luke. Even though he had his own workshop, he continued to collaborate with uh, Veraccio, who was his um, the man he apprenticed to, so his master. Um, Jan and then we jump a few years. January 1st, 1476, uh, Leonardo is accused of sodomy. He is publicly humiliated. He is publicly humiliated through the char... Though... Wow, let me try that again. January 1st, 1476. Leonardo was accused of sodomy. He is publicly humiliated, although the charges are later dropped. It was. It is generally accepted that da Vinci was gay. Though this has been disputed, all historical facts point to the fact that he was. 
he never married, had offspring, or saw a woman in, quote-unquote, that way. In one of his notebooks, he wrote that intercourse between men and women disgusted him. Take from this what you will. Now, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, and I thought, because I had mentioned this to my, my wife and my daughters, and they're like, oh yeah, everybody knows that. And I'm like, I didn't know that. I and didn't I, either. Yeah, and I mentioned it to you, and you're like, no, I didn't know that either. But yeah, so it kind of plays a part in the rest of his life, but it really doesn't, um, other than some of his relationships. Um, and I think I touch on one or two of them, but it's nothing that um, – it wasn't scandalous in any way because homosexuality was looked at differently then than it was – well, than it is now or even than it was you know, 30 years ago. Right. It was more accepted, especially among the art world. Um, you know, your sculptors, your painters, your, um, I don't know, whatever types of arts there are. I mean, they're out there and I'm just blanking at the moment. But uh, so it wasn't as big of a deal other than when you um, accusations of sodomy would come when they were trying to pin somebody down for something else that they didn't have proof of. So they would use a public sodomy um accusation and that would get them into the court and then they could put them in prison or whatever but these his case was dropped because they couldn't get anybody to stand a trial against him so um but we'll we'll move on from here so we jumped to 1480 and i'm not going to give a date at this point i'm thinking i'm not going to give a date unless it's other than january 1st other if it's other than during that year if there's a specific date uh, otherwise if we're gonna, i'm going to say january 1st a lot so 1480 uh, da Vinci uh, starts uh, his inventions. Um, we'll talk about a few of these as, as we move along, but this is where he started. This was the year that he started inventing things. Um, so going beyond just being an artist or going beyond just being a painter, um, he started working on some of his uh, inventions. So in 1481, uh, and you'll notice too, I also use Da Vinci and Leonardo interchangeable. So if anybody's getting confused, I'm still talking about the same guy. Which actually a lot of historians get a little upset about because it's commonly tossed around Da Vinci as if it were really his last name, like Knight or Hearn. Right. But as you mentioned, he was from the village of Da Vinci. Vinci. And that's all Da Vinci means. It's right. not a last name. It's, however, in traditional Western culture, especially modern Western culture, that's how we think of people. We we see the wording and we say, oh, that's the name at the end. It must be their surname. Right. And I guess if you want to get technical, I suppose his surname would have been Piero. Right. So, but for the for the sake of this podcast, I am going to say Leonardo or I'm going to say Da Vinci. And I am referencing the same person. Yes. All right. So. In 1481, Leonardo begins to work on the adoration, adoration of the Magi. Uh, this was an altarpiece for the monastery of San Don, Donato at Scopito. Um, the adoration of the Magi is an early painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Leonardo was given the commission by the Augustine, Augustinian monks of San Donato. 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 Uh, yes. Uh, Scopito in Florence, uh, but departed for Milan the following year, leaving the painting unfinished. It has been at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence since 1670. 
the virgin and child are depicted in the foreground and, a, and form a triangular shape with the magi kneeling in adoration. Behind them is a semicircle of accompanying finger, figures, including what may be a self-portrait of the young Leonardo. Uh, and this would be on the far right of the painting. So if you look up the painting, that's they're, they're saying he's the young, um, probably the best looking guy in the picture because I looked at the, at the uh, painting, uh, but you'll be able to see him. Uh, in the background on the left is the ruin of a pagan building on which workmen can be seen apparently repairing it. On the right are men on horseback fighting and a sketch of a rocky landscape. So when I talk about certain pieces of art, I um, I have description of them most of the time. So if you go look at them and you can go, uh, he's he's full of it or, you know, I don't see that or whatever. Um, so that was 18 or 1481. In 1482, uh, Leonardo moved to Milan to work in the service of the city's duke, Ludovicio Saforza. He gains the title of painter and engineer of the duke. We now, talked that more. would be very important because not only does that provide him with social cachet, it usually would also provide him with funding. Yes. So he didn't have to worry so much about painting commissions or sculpture commissions, selling things. He could just focus on whatever he was working on, usually whatever the duke wanted him to work on, but he'd have some time to work on his own side projects as well. Right, and and the funny thing about it is from this time forward, as you will see, he usually had some sort of a sponsor. Um, you know, he was, he was in high demand at his time. He was probably one of the few artists at the time that never really worried about money. So we jump to 1483. Uh, Leonardo is commissioned to paint the Virgin of the Rocks at the age of 31 in Milan, Italy. Um, the Virgin of the Rocks, sometimes called the Madonna of the Rocks, is the name used for two paintings by Leonardo da Vinci of the same subject and of a composition which is identical except for several significant details. The Virgin generally considered the prime version, that is the earlier of the two, hangs in the Louvre in Paris and the other in the National Gallery in London. The paintings are both nearly two meters high and are painted in oils. Both were painted on wooden panel. Um, that in the Louvre has been transferred to canvas, however. Now, I don't know how they do that, but to me that's amazing. How do you take paint off of a piece of wood without messing it up, put it on a piece of canvas, and it still looks the same, and you haven't, you haven't somehow changed what it is? I'm not sure. I, I suppose the first question would be what kind of wood it was painted on, because obviously he didn't have plywood back right. then, so it would have had to have been a large enough piece of an actual tree, or may, maybe they would have taken several panels and joined them together. Possibly if you soak the wood, and then you can maybe run a plane or a wedge or something underneath the, the very thinnest surface. That's why they have. This is why they have professional professionals that do, do this. Yes, because I, I would even even if I had the technology, I would be so afraid of ruining a Da Vinci. Right. And I'm sure they don't. They're the, the first time you do it, they're not like, "Here's a Da Vinci." You know, they're like, "Here's Bob Jones." Yes. <laughs> Who's Bob Jones? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> So both paintings show the Madonna and child Jesus with the infant John the Baptist and an angel in a rocky setting which gives the paintings their usual name. 
The significant the significant compositional differences are in the gaze and right hand of the angel. There are many minor ways in which the works differ, including the colors, the lighting, the flora, and the way in which sfumato, uh, the technique of allowing tones and colors to shade gradually into one another, producing softened outlines or hazy forms, has been used. Although the date of an associated commission is documented, the complete histories of the two paintings are unknown and lead to speculation about which of the two is earlier. Two further paintings are associated with the commission, side panels each containing an angel playing a musical instrument and completed by associates of Leonardo. These are both in the National Gallery in London. So then, also in 1483, uh, he was working on inventing flying machines. Since he was a small child, he always wondered about flying. Around this time, he drew his first sketch of a parachute. So, 1483, he drew a sketch of a, of a parachute. It's actually kind of a funny little sketch. Um, the parachute is not the way we envision a parachute today. It's, it's longer. It's more of a... I don't even know what you'd call it. It's more of a... It looks more triangular than, you know, the big bowed-out ones we have nowadays. But he looks like he has like a, drawn a marionette hanging from it. So it's, it's kind of a funny little picture. But in all reality, it, it should work. Yes. And in fact, in 2000, a British man using the dimensions and specifications that Leonardo had written about it. And that's one of the things that Leonardo is also famous for. I mean, a lot of people know about his backwards writing and everything but one of his little quirks was he'd be working on something and he'd write up copious notes about things but he hated to leave blank space and so in the margins of the notebooks on the sides or on the backs of some of his works of art he'd doodle he'd write himself notes he'd do things and that's actually where the parachute was found it was in the margin of a notebook about something completely different well and the thing about that is it may make sense to me i mean paper would have been expensive yes I mean, it's not like now we go down to, you know, Office Max and we buy $5 worth of paper and we got 500 sheets of paper. You know, it was expensive. You used it completely, used both sides. You even see that in early America. I mean, students, if they didn't use an actual little chalkboard, they had paper. I mean, they covered it. Yes. There was, there was no – because it was so expensive. Right. You wrote – that's why if you see in a museum or something the – little one-room schoolhouse and the notebooks, like the little blue books that the students had, Yep. there's no margin line in them. The students wrote edge to edge. But anyway, in 2000, uh, there was a, a man in England who designed a parachute strictly according to Leonardo's specifications and jumped out of a hot air balloon. That's awfully it. damn brave. Yes. Um, he... And what they thought was so amazing was the thing weighed 190 pounds. So now we think about modern parachutes, even in the backpack with all the metal rigging and everything, it's like 20 pounds, maybe 30 pounds. Right. Military issues, about 40 pounds. So this thing weighed 190 pounds, but it was still aerodynamically so sound that the guy jumping out of the hot air balloon safely floated down and was uninjured. The only concession that he made was once he got to a little bit above the ground, he cut the harness and rolled out of the way so that when it came 
crashing down. He didn't get crushed. Didn't get crushed by it. That makes sense because it it was um, twelve yards on a side. So basically, a triangle, an equilateral triangle of twelve yards. So thirty six feet. That's a lot of canvas. Yes, (laughs) and it would have been uh, well. It's described as gummed linen cloth. So basically, it's fabric that's almost been vulcanized or rubberized. Yeah. So that it provides that. canopy that will hold the air and provide the air resistance whereas a traditional cloth even if you get really tightly woven the wind air is just gonna holster that's why you can't jump out of an airplane and just hold the tails of your overcoat you can't but i saw that in a comic book i'm sure i did yes probably and it might have been an alien overcoat oh good call anyway let's jump to 1485 uh, Leonardo paints lady with an ermine. Now I had to look up what an ermine was because in the picture it kind of looked like a, a anorexic cat. Yeah, it, that's about right. It, it's a member of the rodent family. It's a it? weasel, actually. Okay. So, um, and at the same time, plague broke out in Milan, which prompted Leonardo to eventually leave. Um, I found that that sentence right there very interesting. Prompted him to eventually leave. So obviously we, they're not talking about the Black Plague, right? Because anybody that was healthy when Black Plague showed up, you scattered. So I don't know if it was like just a, a the flu or something, but something showed up, and he eventually went. You know, I should probably leave. Well, pretty much any type of pandemic would have been called plague, um, just because that was the term that they had. Now, it also might be a case of da Vinci was so focused on his work that maybe he didn't notice. That could be too. Especially if he has his patron. So he might have a cleaning lady and a cook and somebody who delivers his supplies. He might have been in his workshop for weeks at a time and then noticed that his cook was different. He said, oh, where's Mrs. So-and-so? Oh, she died of the plague. Really? There's plague? I suppose. You know, I suppose it's the same way. I I don't know about you, but when I sit down to prep for something, hours can disappear. Right. You're like, oh, well, that was nice. That should have taken 20 minutes. And you kind of look up and you're like, four hours or eight hours or 10 hours. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. done that. Yes. So, all right. So anyway, Lady with an Ermine is a painting uh, from around... Well, in this, in this, and again, this is the dates varying. This says it was from around 18 or 1489 to 1490. Uh, that stunning picture is 40.3 centimeters wide and 54.8 centimeters high. So not very big. It's oil on walnut, walnut board. Unfortunately, the original background has been overlaid probably in the 17th century. The subject of the portrait is identified as Cecilia Gallerani and was probably painted at the time when she was the mistress of Lodovico Sforza, Duke of Milan, and Leonardo was in the service of the Duke. Um, like I said, this picture, when I, when I pulled it up online and I looked at it, it looks like an emaciated cat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, and, and maybe that's what an ermine looks like. Oh, you were talking about the ermine. I thought you were talking about his mistress. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I was talking about the ermine, uh, which is, like I said, a weasel. Um, 
And when you look at it that way, it still doesn't look right. Do you remember the the movie, um, oh, the one with the princess? I know this is going to be really fun. Uh, the one with the princess and the little boy, the never-ending story. Do you remember the never-ending yes, story? Actually. Do you remember the dragon? Yes. It kind of looks like that. Yeah, probably. I mean, Ermine, as you said, they're, they're members of the weasel family, but they are highly prized for the luxuriousness of their fur. So, and uh, oftentimes, royal robes would be trimmed with ermine. Okay. That, so if you ever see, like, paintings or representations of anywhere from 14th to 17th century kings and queens, where they have the, the purple robes, but they might have that white ruff right. or something around the edges of it, that's usually ermine fur. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, do, do you know, are ermine still around? Are they European? Are they European only? I believe they were predominantly European. Okay, because uh, I've never really I've I've heard of weasels and stoats. And yeah, all those, those things. I I don't know if they're still around or not. I've never really looked. Yeah, and it's just something that popped into my head now. I'm right. like, um, otherwise I could have looked it up if I'd have thought about it before. Right, and they they would be a type of animal that could be in danger of being hunted to extinction because. They were so luxurious. Everybody wanted ermine clothing. Yeah. And it, it looked beautiful. It was soft. It was warm. But my question would be, if it's part of the weasel family, wouldn't they have stank? Not necessarily. If you um, if you kill it properly or skin it properly, I mean, you can make clothing out of skunk fur if you know what you're doing. You just don't nick the scent gland. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, um, yeah, I, I, I've seen skunk fur, and when it's done and it's done right, it looks beautiful. Yes. It's got this really nice shine to it. Mm -hmm. and, but anyway, so moving on. So April 15th, 1485, Leonardo was fascinated by the flight, producing many studies of the flight of birds. This included his codex on the flight of birds, as well as plans for many flying machines. Within these plans, he produced, or he designed a helicopter and a light hang glider. Most were useless and didn't work, like his screw helicopter could not provide lift. However, the hang glider has been successfully constructed and demonstrated based on his design. So, nobody knows if he actually attempted to build these things to see if they worked. Um, it's one of those things that have been lost to history. Uh, they don't know if, you know, if he tried the hang glider and it worked and it became something... And I'm guessing it didn't become something that they used in everyday world because we would have heard about it. We'd have figured it out eventually. But they don't know if he ever constructed anything. But they do know that this hang glider, when constructed, actually works. Yes. And in fact, in 2013, there was a team of Canadian engineers that took some of his flying screw ideas, the helicopter, okay, and actually built it on a bicycle. And uh, they entered it in an international competition. They actually got it off the ground. How so, far, though? Um, I couldn't find how far they got it. Okay. Um, the biggest problem that everybody ran into with looking at his original ideas was simply that a single person, the original plan for the helicopter had kind of like bicycle pedals, right? but it was designed that you would sit in a chair and move them with your hands, kind of like a hand crank. And there simply wasn't anyone strong enough or able to turn the pedals fast enough 
to achieve consistent lift with the um, the prop okay. of the helicopter. But by putting it on a bicycle framework and maybe having some wings or something else to aid with the elevation, if you get a couple of people on it, like on a tandem bike, you would be able to use your legs, which would give you more force. So you well, yeah, because your legs are resistance. most likely twice or three times as strong as your arms are. Right. And so then you would be actually be able to generate enough torque to spin the propeller blade. You might also, instead of going with a single two blade, which most of Leonardo's designs included, you might go with a four blade, like a modern helicopter, which would give you greater surface area per rotation for lift. Well, and the other thing with modern helicopters that um, I never really talked about is they have that small additional blade a few feet up from the main blade, and it's it's a much shorter, but I guess it is actually there for stabilization. Yes, some of them um, use that one. Others use the tail rotor for stabilization because when you have the, the screw spinning, it's like Newton's laws of thermodynamics. I believe it's the second one. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. When you've got that rotor spinning one way, physics says, okay, the base has to spin the other way to balance it out. So they use that tail rotor to provide force against the natural spin, which is why a lot of times you see in TV shows and movies when uh, a rocket or something hits the tail end of a helicopter, it, it just takes starts out that spinning rotor, out. It starts to spin out of control. It's because it's lost the stabilizer. Okay, that makes sense. Have you ever been in a helicopter? I have. In fact, I have flown a helicopter. Really? Very briefly, and I did not take it off or land it. Okay. But uh, one time for my birthday, my mom actually got me a ride in a helicopter where I got to fly it for a while and a single-engine Cessna where I got to um, fly that around as well with the pilot in the seat next to me. Okay. I've never been in a helicopter because, quite honestly, I've always been told, and I don't know if this is true, but by, by physics, by the way physics are believed to work now – Helicopters should not fly. And the fact that they do kind of creeps me out and makes me think of witchcraft. Now, that might be just my gaming background, but you know what I mean? It's just yes. it's one of those things. I've never been in a helicopter. I've always kind of wanted to, but yet I'm, I don't want to. Yes. Um, they are a lot of fun. They're incredibly noisy. Okay. And you... You always see people in helicopters represented in TV shows and movies. They have the headphones on. Part of that is so that they can talk back and forth. They use the, the intra-cabin radio. Right. But it's also to protect your ears. Well, it makes sense, too, because with all that force and all the, that lift is coming by pushing down onto the cockpit. Mm -hmm. So that's where all the noise and all the wind and everything is going to go. Yes, and it does rattle your bones. I can believe that. I mean... I hope someday that I will get inside of a helicopter just to say I've done it, but I want them to fly really low to the ground. <laughs> Not that that's going to save you, because if those blades get caught in the ground, you're dead anyway. Yes, you'll you'll start to flip over. It's one of those things that say you lose engine power in a plane, well, you can still dead stick it and glide. Right. You lose engine power in a helicopter, you're in a large rock, you drop. Yeah, yeah, I just, they, they, they kind of scare me, I'll be honest. All right, so let's jump ahead here to 1490. And 
what we're going to talk about now is probably one of the, his best known drawings, it's not a painting, the Vitruvian Man, or simply Lo Umo Virtuviano, and I'm probably killing that because it's Italian, um, is, is a drawing by Leonardo da Vinci from around 1490. It is accompanied by notes based on the work of the architect Vitruvius. The drawing, which is pen and ink on paper, depicts a man in two superimposed positions with his arms and legs apart and inscribed in a circle and square. The drawing and text are sometimes called the canon of proportions or less often proportions of man. It is kept in the Gabinetto Deschini e Stampe of the Galleria dell'Accademia in Venice, Italy, under reference 228. Like most works on paper, it is displayed to the public only occasionally. So the same as they do with our Declaration of Independence. There's always a Declaration of Independence on, on display, but the real one, very rarely. True. So um, I have always been intrigued by the Vitruvian Man. What do you think? Um... I've seen, I mean, obviously just about everybody's seen it. it. It's considered one of the most recognizable drawings in the world, not only for the artistic perspective and the belief that it's the representation of the ideal form, mm -hmm. but also because, I mean, you look around, how many times will you see somebody wearing a t-shirt that has that on it or some version of it, maybe a parody right. of it? Or um, it's often been used in opening credits for TV shows, especially like medical dramas or um, I, actually I think in one of the versions of CSI, they actually mm -hmm. use an image of it in part of the opening credits. That could be. Yeah. Um, and I believe it was on the etched plate that was on the original Voyager that was sent out outside the I, to penetrate the edge of the solar system i think you're right um so anyway to continue on the drawing is based on the correlations of ideal human proportions with geometry described by the ancient roman architect vitruvius in book three of his treatise de architectura or architectura vitruvius described uh the human figure as being the principal source of proportion among the classical orders of architecture Vitruvius determined that the ideal body should be eight heads high. Leonardo's drawing is traditionally named in honor of the architect. I, how big is a head? So is he saying you should measure your head and then you should have seven more of them to the floor? Well, it, it's kind of like our old measure of the foot. Mm -hmm. Well, it was based on the foot size of whoever the king was at the time they decided to standardize the measurements. Yep. It's kind of like a span, uh, middle fingertip to middle fingertip if you stretch your arms out. If you are properly proportioned, that's supposed to be equal to your height. I so, am not properly proportioned then. Neither am I. I In have fact, short arms for my height. Oh, see, I have almost an additional foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I see, guess... You're it... actually supposed to be seven feet tall. Okay, I get... Hey, that would help with my weight problem. Yeah. <laughs> See, you're not overweight, you're under tall. I, I, this, I've said this for years, and my doctors don't agree with me. Yes. But uh, Vitruvius and De Architectura, a lot of what the um, 
Renaissance um, architects and artists and sculptors and philosophers talked about was actually something that a lot of the ancient Greeks and Romans understood just intrinsically. A lot of the Renaissance says, isn't it wonderful how ideally suited the world around us is for the human form? The Greeks and Romans said, well, we built all this stuff based on us. Right. Now, I think the average human head, when they talk about like headspan and stuff, would have been about eight inches. So in the Roman times, that would make sense because that would come out to about 64 inches. It's a little over five feet. So about five, four, which the average human height back around zero, like the transition from before common era to the common era was about average male height was about five and a half feet. Okay. So that's why you look at a lot of the uh, classical Greek architecture and some of the old Roman architecture, like, why are these doorways so short? Well, because the people were short. Right, right. If you're five foot four, you don't need an eight foot doorway. Correct. You know, whereas we know people, or I, I don't know, well, maybe, we. I, I knew a guy who was well over seven feet tall, and he would duck to get through doors. Yes. You know, just because he's big even for now. I mean, now the average man is, what, 5'10"? About there, yeah, between five ten and six feet, I would say, depending yeah. on what country you're looking at. Right. For I, I believe in America, I think it's five ten is the official thing, but I see a lot of guys about my height, which is right about six feet. Right. So, anyway, moving on, uh, we move to fourteen ninety five. Leonardo began his work on the Last Supper in the refectory of the convent of Santa Maria del Grassi in Milan, and I think that one I pronounced right. In 1498, uh, Leonardo completes the Last Supper. Uh, it represents the scene of the Last Supper from the final days of Jesus as narrated in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13, verse 21, when Jesus, when Jesus announced that one of the twelve apostles would betray him. Uh, easily his most famous work. I suppose you could argue that the Mona Lisa is his most famous work, but either way, this is a scene that can be found in every church hall and on a lot of households all over the world. I mean, I grew up with one in the dining room when I was a kid. Did you guys have one? No, not really, which was kind of odd given yeah. how religious my uh, grandmother's family was. I mean, I'm from an Irish Catholic family in Boston. Um, I have numerous cousins and aunts and uncles who are in the church, and we had a certain amount of religious iconography around the house. I mean, we had a crucifix. Uh, we actually had a crushed velvet child Jesus portrait. Okay. So, so it's like, like a, Jesus like a, as a five-year-old okay, with but, a halo. But, but like a velvet Elvis except kind of, of like Jesus. Kind of like a velvet Elvis, Okay, yes. okay. So, well, this was the 70s yeah. at this time. So, But we didn't have any of the big pieces. We didn't have any of the adorations. We didn't have um, the Last Supper. I think maybe part of that was because it might have been in deference to my grandfather, who was actually Jewish. Okay. Um, he and his family fled Hitler in okay. the early 30s uh, from Germany. But we also just didn't have a lot of artwork on the walls. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember the one my mother had when I was a kid, and I think she still has it, um, even though I don't think it's hanging at this point. I It was probably four feet wide. And a good two feet wide. I mean, it was huge. And it said on the dining room wall, it was it was big. But um, 
anytime you, you'd have a, a production or reproduction of one of those, it, it was always massive because it had to fit everybody in. Right. So, and it's an interesting debate about whether The Last Supper or The Mona Lisa not only is his most famous work, but also the work about which the most conspiracy theories abound. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure when we get into modern times, we're going to talk about some of those. We are. All right. So, um, also in 1498, he follows up finishing the um, Last Supper by decorating the walls and ceiling of the Sala del Asse. Um, that's how I'm going to say it. Um, it's A-S-S-E. So I'm going to say it's the Sala del Asse. Uh, in English means room of the tower or room of the wooden boards, um, is the location for the wall and ceiling painting in tempura on plaster of decorated intertwining plants with fruits and monochromes of roots and rocks by Leonardo da Vinci, dating from about 1498, and located in the Castello Sofranzesco in Milan. Uh, during the painting of his Last Supper, Leonardo was presented with a room in the Sforza Castle for his own use by the then Duke of Milan, uh, Ludovicio Sforza. Some documents describe the work of Leonardo in the Sforza Castle. This includes an order of Ludovicio Sforza and a letter of 1498 by the Chancellor Gualtiero Biscape addressed to the Duke where it said that in the September of that year the artist had finished decorating the Sala del Asse. Uh, Leonardo was responsible for the decoration of the ceiling and the walls. How many people worked with him is unknown. He also made his first attempt at planning a flying machine around this time. So again that one kind of goes against something that was said earlier. And, and that's the funny thing about his life because they don't really have everything they know about him really comes from his tax returns, his different court cases and things like that. Because when they try to look at his notebooks and make any sense out of them, there is no sense there because he didn't expect those, those were not made for the public. Those were made for him. Right. And in fact, as was the case with a lot of um, famously smart people or geniuses who were working on things, there was also a sense of concern about what we would today probably call intellectual property theft or industrial espionage. Um, he didn't want people stealing his ideas. Right, and his biggest reason for that was, and I read this and I don't think I put it in my notes, but his biggest reason for that was he was afraid people would use them for destructive purposes. So he had figured out a way, um, according to one of the things I read, to keep your breath underwater for a long time. So basically some sort of a scuba suit. Yep. He destroyed he destroyed those notes because he was afraid that after he died, some government would use them to blow up ships and the men upon them and sink them to the bottom of the ocean. So it, it was more of a concern for him than it was of a, I don't want people to know what I know. It's more of a, how are they going to use this? So... Uh, all right, so 1499, uh, Leonardo goes back to Venice. Uh, with the Duke uh, Sforza's fall from power, da Vinci leaves Milan and spends a short time in Venice. Then we jump to 1500. Leonardo and Piccoli, uh, Friar Luca Bartolomeo de Piccoli, was, uh, he was an Italian mathematician 
Franciscan friar, collaborator with Leonardo da Vinci, and seminal contributor to the field known as accounting. He is referred to as the father of accounting and bookkeeping in Europe, and he was the first person to publish a work on the double entry system of bookkeeping in this continent. He was also called Luca de Borga after his birthplace. Um, they go to Mantua, then Leonardo continues on to Florence. In Mantua, he draws the portrait and profile of Isabella de Este. In Florence, he paints the Virgin and Child with St. Anne. Um, he begins painting the Virgin and Child with St. Anne, a project that he finishes after 10 years. It takes him 10 years to paint one painting. He wanted to get it right. Either that or he got sidetracked and did something else and came back to it. Well, also, if he's if his duke patron had fallen from power, he might have actually needed to earn a living for a change. That, that could be. Although, so, um, I wanted to jump in on the uh, Franciscan friar that you were just talking about. Oh, okay. About. All right. Um, one of my favorite authors is Robert Asper. Okay. Unfortunately, lost too soon. Uh, I actually went to college with his daughter. And... In his, um, the one series, the Myth Adventure series, he always put these, like, these little quotes at the start of each chapter. Okay. And oftentimes there would be, it, it was something that if you were a fan of his work or, like, that type of genre, you would easily recognize them. There was one that was actually from Piccoli. Okay. And... It's not Piccoli? Uh, well, it could be Piccoli. Okay. I, but... I had no idea what it was, and it was the only one that I ever saw in any of his books that had a little footnote for it. Okay. And down at the bottom, it, it said, I'll give you this one because it's really obscure. He was the father of double-entry bookkeeping. And I thought it was really interesting because it was the quote of the first chapter of the book where the main character of the series, Skeev the Magician, runs into the mob. Okay. Now, so I'm sure there are people out there that have an accounting background that probably hate this guy. <laughs> Could be. But anyway... To... Although there, there are a lot of people that hate his family. Okay. Well, his family was notorious because they were the Borgias. Okay. And the Borgias were notorious Italian uh, power brokers. Uh, there were a couple of them that were popes. Um... If you're a fan of the Sci-Fi Channel series Warehouse 13, one of the first episodes of season one deals with Lucretia Borgia's hairpin and how it uh, possesses yes. somebody. Yes, yes. Okay, I remember that. Yes. All right, so to continue on, though, in that year of 1500, uh, The Virgin and Child with St. Anne is an oil painting by Da Vinci depicting St. Anne, her daughter, the Virgin Mary, and the infant Jesus. Christ is showing grappling with a sacrificial lamb symbolizing his passion as the Virgin tries to restrain him. The painting was commissioned as the high altarpiece for the Church of Santa Cecima Annunziata in Florence, and its theme has long preoccupied Leonardo. He does a lot of iconic, well, I suppose it's not technically iconic um, per the church anywhere, but he does a lot of artwork that has to do with Mary and the baby Christ um, and even the adult Christ um, in the Last Supper, but a lot of religious iconography. Right. Um, almost call them devotional pieces. Yeah, that would be a better word. 
Because to be iconic, it has to be approved by the church and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we then jump to 1502. Uh, Leonardo begins work as a senior military architect and general engineer for Cesar Borgia, son of Pope Alexander VI. Uh, Cesar was the Duke of Valentianos, Valentinos, was a Spanish Italian Condiatario, which is a leader of mercenaries, a nobleman, a politician, and cardinal, whose fight for power was a major inspiration for the prince by Machiavelli. Um, he was the illegitimate son of Pope Alexander VI and his long-term mistress, Vananosa di Catanei. After initially entering the church and becoming a cardinal on his father's election to the papacy, he became the first person to resign a cardinalcy after the death of his brother in 1498. His father set him up as a prince with a territory carved out from the papal states, but after his father's death, he was unable to retain power for long. Per Machiavelli, this was due to his, due to his planning for all possibilities but his own illness. And, you know, at the time, if your general goes down, nobody knows what to do. Exactly. You know, it's not like modern armies where, yes, you want your general there to tell you what to do, but if he's not there, you've got somebody underneath him. You know, you've got your, your major or your uh, lieutenant or somebody that is going to say, okay, the general's got the flu. This is what we're doing, you know, kind of thing. So, And part of the reason for that would be because if you train someone to carry out your battle plans and lead your troops, the thought was it's only a matter of time before they start thinking, you know, I could do this just as well, if not better, than my superior. And I'll make more money. Right. Why don't I just off him and I'll become the general? Yeah. I guess it's a good thing that in a lot of cases that's no longer the way people think about things. Um, you know, but that was the time. That was the world at the time. So, uh, 1503, uh, Leonardo is commissioned to paint a mural for the council hall in Florence's Palazzo Vecchio, which is to be the uh, Battle of Angra Hiery, a work that he never finished. Um, he's also then commissioned in the same year to paint the Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, also known as La Gioconda, is a 16th century portrait painted in oil on poplar panel during the Italian Renaissance. The painting is a half-length portrait and depicts a seated woman whose facial expression is frequently described as enigmatic. Enigmatic. Which, I mean, everybody knows what the Mona Lisa looks like. She looks bored to me. That's what the that's that's always the way I've pictured her. You know, and I've heard people go, well, based on her facial features and this, that, and the next thing, you know, she had she had palsy or she had this or she you know had that birth defect or whatever but i'm just like she just looks bored which was very standard in portraits painted at the time because you had to sit there for hours upon end and not move or even change your facial expression right and so that was actually you know that's why old pictures too everybody looks always grumpy you know it's because the cameras weren't quick you had to sit there for three to five minutes or whatever and hold a pose which meant you didn't smile because you can't smile a big, toothy smile for five minutes. I don't care who you are. Well, especially if you've got dentistry of the time, you don't want to smile a big, gummy smile. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we jump to 1505. 
Uh, Virgin of the Rocks was the first painting executed by Leonardo after he arrived in Milan. Critics argue over what the painting depicts. Some claim it shows the Immaculate Conception, while others think it recalls the moment when the infant Christ met St. John the Baptist. Now, remember that we talked about another painting with the same name earlier on. They have very similar depictions and very much painted alike. Uh, that said, there are two. The version generally considered the prime version, that's the one we talked about earlier, um, hangs in the Louvre in Paris, and the other one uh, hangs in the National Gallery in London. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's pretty much the same picture with a different facial expression and a finger pointing in a different direction kind of thing. So it's kind of like he went back to the well. It almost makes you wonder if, you know, somewhere along there he lost inspiration or if perhaps somebody went, you know, I heard about this thing you did here. Can you do something like it? And, I mean, he took it to the almost exact <laughs> duplicate. I don't know. but um, So I think it's kind of interesting that he named them the same. Or maybe history named them the same. I don't know. Um, but anyway, 1507, uh, Leonardo is appointed Louis XII's painter and engineer. So Louis XII was a monarch of the House of Valois. Or Valois. Valois. Valois who ruled as King of France from 1498 to 1515 and King of Naples from 1501 to 1504. Uh, he also meets his beautiful young assistant, Francesco Melzi. Uh, he, Francesco Melzi was an Italian painter. He was the son of a Milanese noble family. Melzi joined the household of Leonardo da Vinci in uh, 1506 when he was 15 years old. He studied as an apprentice but would become his constant companion in his remaining years. He accompanied Leonardo on trips to Rome in 1513 and to France in 1517. As a very talented paper, Melzi worked closely with and for Leonardo. As a mark of his artistic skills, some works which, upon, uh, which during the 19th century were attributed to Leonardo are today ascribed to Melzi. Um, upon Leonardo's death, Melzi inherited the artistic and scientific works, manuscripts, and collections of Leonardo, and would henceforth faithfully administer the estate. Um, he also travels to Florence during this year in a lawsuit against his brothers about the inheritance from his uncle Francesco. Or Francesco. So this this guy that ended up spending the rest of his life, or the rest of Da Vinci's life with him, um, actually some of the stuff that they thought was Leonardo's was actually his. It also goes on that um, once Leonardo died, he got married, he had a family. Leonardo's um, papers and all that moved on to his son. And then when his son passed away, they sold them. And that's how they kind of got lost to history for a while and over the years now have been collected again. And they, they, think, they think they have a pretty solid idea of the life of da Vinci. So then we go on to 1510. July 24th, 1510, Leonardo designs a machine for grinding convex lenses. He called it the lens grinding machine. Um, the hand rotation of the grinding wheel operates an angle gear, which rotates a shaft, turning a geared dish in which sits the glass or crystal to be ground. A single action rotates both surfaces at a fixed speed ratio determined by the gear. That is pretty high tech for the year 1510. Oh, yes. Now, they don't know if he used these to help people see better. 
because glasses weren't a thing. Um, but they, they do think that perhaps he made them and people would hold them up so they could read or that perhaps even Leonardo himself used them to read. But basically a convex lens um, are used uh, if you're nearsighted. Your eye lens focuses on a scene just in front of the retinas in your eye and the image you see is blurred. A concave lens spreads out the light rays before they enter the eye. So they are focused on the retina and the image is sharp. Diverging light rays are made parallel by a convex lens. We don't know if that's what Da Vinci used it for. Maybe he used it to fry ants. We don't know. Well, there's actually a couple of things that um, he is credited with, um, if not discovering, at least advancing the science of, that deal with that. Okay. Um, one of them is telescopes. In uh, one of his notebooks is discovered designs and theories about um, what we would now today call a standard mirror telescope. Okay. And there's uh, this one quote, it says, in order to observe the nature of the planets, open the roof and bring the image of a single planet onto the base of a concave mirror. The image of the planet reflected by the base will show the surface of the planet much magnified. So he was already aware, and with the, the grinding of the lenses, that would be how you'd get a shaped mirror. Right. And so he was, uh, if he didn't actually build the telescope himself, he advanced the theory of how to make it work. Okay. The other is that um, in 1509, so right around this time period, um, there's notations of a sketch for creating what would then in the 19th century become contact lenses. Okay. He actually um, designed and developed um, lenses filled with water because he had discovered that if you look at something through a bowl of water or say you're out in the ocean and you look under the water and myself being nearsighted, I've noticed this when I wear a mask underwater is that the, the refraction of the light through the water actually acts as a magnifier so that even when I don't wear my glasses, I don't have to have a custom ground prescription uh, scuba mask. I can just wear a regular old plastic mask even and the water magnifies things so that it's like I have perfect vision. Okay. All right. So we then move on to 1513. Living in the Vatican, he studies the property of mirrors. We were just talking about that. It is perhaps at this time that he paints the Turin self-portrait or the portrait of a man in red chalk, uh, which is held in the uh, Bibliotheca Real. Turin is widely, though not universally, accepted as the self-portrait of Leonardo da Vinci. It is thought that Leonardo da Vinci drew this self-portrait at about the age of 60. The portrait has been extensively reproduced and has become an iconic representation of Leonardo as a polymath or renaissance man. Despite this, some historians and scholars disagree as to the true identity of the sitter. It is during this year that Leo X became Pope. The previous year, the Medici family returned to power in Florence. So Pope Leo X was a Medici. Um, and at this point in history, the papacy was pretty much a inherited thing. Families that had the power picked the Pope. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, other than that, I mean, you're familiar with the paint or the uh, the, the uh, self-portrait in red chalk 
the old man Leonardo with the right. big beard and the, mm-hmm. the, the the squinty little old man eyes. Um, you know, and that is pretty much how we think he looked. Um, and they have figured because believe it or not, people out there, if if you if you don't understand this, they didn't have photos in the 1500s. Couldn't take a selfie. It had to be hell. It had to be. But anyway, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk down anybody. Um, it was kind of meant as a joke. But anyway, to move on, 1515, Leonardo paints St. John the Baptist. Um, it is a high Renaissance oil painting on walnut wood, uh, probably competed, completed uh, for between 1513 and 1516. It is believed to be his final painting and is now exhibited at the Musée de Louvre in Paris, France. The piece depicts St. John the Baptist in isolation. Through use of chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. Yeah, that. The figure appears to emerge from the shadowy background. St. John is dressed in pelts, has long curly hair, and is smiling in an en- en- enigmatic, in, that's the word, manner, reminiscent of Leonardo's famous Mona Lisa. He holds a reed cross in his left hand, while his right hand points up toward heaven, like St. Anne in Leonardo's Burlington House cartoon. According to Zollner, Leonardo's use of sufmato conveys the religious content of the picture, and that the gentle shadows imbue the subject's skin tones with a very soft, delicate appearance, almost androgynous in its effect, which has led to this portrayal being interpreted as an expression of Leonardo's homoerotic leanings. He also constructs a mechanical lion for the coronation of the new king of France, Francis I. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a beautiful picture. Um, I looked at all these pieces of art. I am not an art connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination. But there is, when I read this and I look at the picture, and I'm like, it kind of makes sense. The mechanical lion, jumping to the second part of this, they, there's no, it, it didn't survive, but it would actually wind up and it would open up and the chest of the lion would open up and flowers would be presented, is how it worked. Um, they don't know how the motor itself worked. They, all they really have is um, writings about it, um, but they don't even, they've never found a sketch of it in Leonardo's work, so they're not sure how he managed to do it. But in 2009, okay, they actually there was a Venetian designer, so someone in Venice, put together enough of his notes to actually build a clockwork mechanism to power it, okay, and built one of these things six feet long, and it didn't do the chest open and the flowers come out, but it could walk, it could move its head, and it could wag its tail. Oh, nice. So that that reminds me of a very bad joke, though. How do you make a Venetian blind? Like this. <laughs> so anyway, uh, history of the world, part one uh, reference there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so we move into 1516, uh, and this is the year where Leonardo permanently leaves Italy for France, where he will serve Francis I in his court at Amboise. Then um, May 2nd, 1519. Um, From 1513 to 1519, Leonardo spent much of his time living in the Belvedere in the Vatican in Rome, where Raphael and Michelangelo were both active at the time. Hey, 
Where's Donatello? I know, he always gets the short shrift. I know. Anyway, in 1516, he entered Francis I's service, being given the use of the manor house close loose near the king's residence. It was here that he spent the last three years of his life and where he died on May 2nd, 1519. Thus ends my look into the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Do you have anything you want to add before we move on to uh, your part of his representation in modern times? Uh, nope, but there are a couple of the pieces that I'm going to bring up that will reference back to some of the things that you were talking about. Okay, perfect. So let's uh, let's go ahead and get started on okay. Da Vinci in the modern era. So the first things I want to talk about are kind of a bridge. Um, they are things in contemporary life, modern life, especially modern technology elements that a lot of people might not realize were either invented by or inspired by da Vinci's work. Okay. Uh, we've already touched on some of them. The flight safety with the parachute, uh, the design of the helicopter, the telescope and contact lenses, uh, Vitruvian man drawing, and all of that. Okay. Um, with Just a quick follow-up on the robotics, he actually designed not just the lions, but a human-shaped robot. So almost it, like an android? Almost like an android. It had uh, pulleys and springs that when you, like, threw the lever and counterweights and everything, it could actually walk and, like, move its arms, kind of like the clockwork beef eater right. that you see a lot of times marching across the front of a small-scale Buckingham Palace or something. Okay. Um, if We're going to start way back in time. All right. And uh, Leonardo is considered one of the fathers of paleontology, the study of fossils. Uh, there is a rare fossil known as the Paleodictyon. Okay. Which is basically looks like a hexagon or a, a six-sided figure left in sediment. And even today, scientists don't quite understand how these are formed which is why it has kind of like that generic name from which the entire study is taken, paleo. and But they think it's a sign of an animal burrowing into the sea floor, maybe to escape a predator. Okay, so it would burrow in. The creature's no longer there, but it somehow creates this fossil? Right. Okay. The, the shape becomes fossilized. Also, in his notes were found uh, references to other fossils that he found and thoughts about the fact that these may have been the remains of ancient creatures that time had turned to stone. Okay, so he pretty so, much kind of had it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another study, which I, initially I thought was a misprint until I, I went and re researched it a little more. It's called Ichnology. Ichnology. Ichnology, I-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-Y, which is the study of behavioral traces of plants and animals. So it's not like ichthyology, which is the study of fish, and um, most people associate ichthyology with sharks, especially. Okay. But ichnology is actually looking at the interaction of animals in the environment. Okay. So um, from there, kind of going along with the uh, seafloor, one of the things you mentioned was his invention of rudimentary scuba gear. Right. He also had discovered, or, or seems to have discovered, that some marine predators would respond to human fluids in the water. We all know how sh there's the 
the saying that a shark can smell a drop of blood in 10 miles of ocean. Right. Well, he not only developed a, like a scuba mask or a way to... It, he actually did a, a couple of ones. One was a floating cork buoy that would keep um, hollow tubes right. so above you can the breathe. surface. You yep. can breathe. But he also had an oiled leather bag that would actually hold air. So like a like bladder. A like a, yeah, right. like a scuba tank or a bladder. And then he had another one that was designed for the diver to pee into so that you didn't urinate into the water, which would change the chemical composition of the water around you and might attract a marine predator, thinking that it, the, the salt and acid content of urine probably might be considered similar enough to blood that it might attract a predator that way. Fair enough. And so, I mean, Italy's surrounded by quite a bit of water. Yes. So I can see him, you know, coming up, coming to those conclusions, I guess. You know, from a 20th century, you're like, well, it makes sense. But from a 16th century, we don't, we, we kind of know what they knew, but we don't really know what they knew or right. how they looked at the world around them. Mm-hmm. So, um,. Coming forward a little bit, you've heard of Sigmund Freud. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Yes, uh, Freud actually used da Vinci as a theoretical subject for one of his books on his theory of psychoanalysis that he published in 1916. I was attempting to prove his theories by and that he didn't need to meet the subject in person, that you could apply his techniques to anyone even someone who was already dead and about whom we only had the written record. Okay. And so he used Da Vinci. Do you have the name of the book? Um, no, I do not. Okay. It says, based on a very brief description in Leonardo's notes of a childhood memory. So it's not even... Like, his entire life. His it's entire just, life. It's little... just this one memory. Okay. Uh, Freud psychoanalyzed Leonardo, coming up with extensive explanations for his relentless curiosity, artistic skill, and overall behavior. Really? Yes. So I think a, a lot of people think Freud was brilliant, maybe ahead of his time, but maybe a little too focused on his own brilliance and being ahead of his time. So. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're in high school and you take psychology, because I think most people have to take psychology, you know, they tell you about Freud. But even that, they tell you, you know, most of his theories have been proven incorrect. And I think that... Um, Freud, though he was intelligent, uh, obviously, I mean, he was a smart man, but he was also a coke fiend, and I think he was a little too attached to his mother. <laughs> Probably, which would be why his theories were focused on all of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right. Um, art. You Obviously, da Vinci is known as a, a great artist. Yep. And you talked about two techniques that um, he helped develop. The chiaroscuro, which is the contrast between light and shadow. Right. And then sfumato, uh, which is blending the oils in the paint so that you don't have these marked distinctions between the different colors. Everything right. Everything kind of shades together. Yeah, everything kind of flows mm -hmm. together. Um, there's no sharp lines, no... You know, this is blue and this is red. This is purple, you know? Right. Yep. Um, he was, as we've talked about with the, the grinding of the lenses and telescopes and contact lenses and everything, he was obsessed with optics and perspective. He was actually one of the, the first artists to work with 
um, what we would now today call atmospheric perspective, which is basically how if you have a scene where you have something that's close to you and something that's farther away, the thing that's close to you is clear and the thing that's farther away is blurred. Right, right. So, uh, and he actually used that in the Mona Lisa, which is where a lot of people picked up on it. If you look up the Mona Lisa, everything about her is clear, but all the stuff behind her is kind of fuzzy. Right. So, and in fact, when he went to France and was in the court of King Francis I, his work inspired what became known as French classicism. Okay. And incorporated a lot of these techniques. All right. Um... He also applied his artistic skills and drafting skills to medicine. Okay. Um, not only with Vitruvian Man, where it's considered to be the ideal form, but he actually was very interested in anatomy and would have did some of what would have been the first dissections of a cadaver. Okay. Um, he was one of the first people to accurately describe the spine, how it's the backbone isn't perfectly straight but it has the curves to it okay um he also was uh, an early proponent of the principles of dentistry and Bastard. discovering how the the teeth fit into the jaw and everything okay um heart surgery and heart disease uh, he was actually the first person to describe coronary artery disease and the first person to say that the heart is a muscle that it acts the way like your bicep Right, or anything right. like that. Um, he also figured out about a hundred years before anybody else that the heart was critical to maintaining blood flow. So everybody else is saying, oh no, it, it's just a filter or whatever. He's like, no, it, it's the muscle. It, it pumps the stuff. Yeah, if this stops, so, so do you. Yep. And he would actually take the hearts out of cadavers and other animals and cut them apart and go, oh, hey, ventricles atria okay unfortunately his forays into looking at anatomy and human and animal led to one of his rare few missteps when he got into obstetrics okay he made the he made the mistaken assumption is he figured okay human women produce milk to nurse their young cows produce milk to nurse their young therefore most of the Cows give live birth, humans give live birth. Therefore, most of the, the systems must be similar. Now, as it turns out, um, the human female reproductive anatomy doesn't really match up with the cow reproductive anatomy. Yes, but the way he was looking at it and the, the parallels he was running, they make sense for him yes. to believe this. Right. And again, we're talking about fifteenth, late 15th, early 16th century. We're not talking about contemporary right so but one of the things that uh, he did come up with correctly was the way that the fetus develops and sits within the uterus in the human and which led to um, advances in midwifery successful and safe childbirth things like that and then um, the last one from this uh, particular list that i found is Optical illusions. So um, he was one of the first people to have produce um, sub surviving work of something called anamorphosis. Okay. It's a, it's a visual trick where an image looks distorted from the usual vantage point but appears normal in another, such as in a mirror. 
which goes back to his whole, he wrote his notes backwards and left-handed and whatnot. So, um, and this is the illusion, again, goes into his artistic perspective and everything, that you can make a flat image look three-dimensional. Okay. So, now, piggybacking off of the art, we talked about Francis I and, his, and da Vinci's influence on French, French classicism while he's there. Okay. Um, one of the most famous paintings about da Vinci, but not by da Vinci, is called The Death of Leonardo da Vinci in the Arms of Francis I. It was painted by the, the French painter Menagio in 1781. Okay. So da Vinci has been represented himself in artwork as well as compiling an impressive body of work that he generated. Um, he is so famous um, that he has had an, not just a profound influence on pop culture, but kind of an interesting influence on pop culture. Um, there's an airport in Rome named for him. Okay. He is a character in novels based on the Assassin's Creed video game. See, now that, that, that's just weird to me. Why you would take him and place him in the Assassin's Creed books. Because as far as I remember, they don't actually have an Assassin's Creed game that happens during the Renaissance at this point. Couldn't tell you. I've never played any of them. Okay. They, they've they had the American Revolution. They've had pirates. They've had ancient Rome. They've had... Um, there's a few other ones. I can't remember them all, but... As far as I can remember, they don't have one during the Renaissance. So it seems kind of weird, but I suppose maybe a novel mood turns it, you know, they get a lot of response for the novel, they turn around and make it into a video game. Could be. Kind of thing. So, um, also going with uh, Francis and his um, having use of that manor house, that is what inspires the da Vinci character in the Drew Barrymore film Ever After. Okay, I have not seen Ever After. Okay, it's it's really interesting. It's a cross between the Da Vinci story and Cinderella. Okay. So it, it's very. I won't say more than that because the the way the the Cinderella story is treated, uh, it's really interesting. It's a complete departure from any other treatment of it that I've ever seen. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of the film. I think it's incredibly well done. It's an excellent plot. It's excellent scripting. It's just not my cup of tea. My wife loves it. Okay. It's one of her favorite movies. Um, he also appeared in the animated film Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. If you yeah. remember the cartoons, um, they take the Wayback Machine, and then it breaks, and they have to find Da Vinci to help them fix it. Okay, fair enough. Um, he has been in a ton of TV shows, including a ton of Star Trek. TV shows. In fact, he's been in episodes in the original series, Next Generation, and Voyager. Wow. Now, in Voyager, he is has a very well-developed role over multiple episodes. Oh, really? Yes. But the first one where he shows up in the original series is the episode Requiem for Methuselah. Okay, yep. Where Kirk runs into the character Flint, who claims to be an immortal from Earth, who uh, we would kind of call it a mutant that he has almost the Wolverine regeneration ability, that he his body never wears out, so he hasn't died. Okay. He claimed to be 
da Vinci, he claimed to be Alexander the Great, he claimed to be Solomon, and he claimed to be Brahms, the musician. In uh, The Next Generation, um, he shows up in one episode at the very beginning where Data is playing cards with him and Stephen Hawking and Einstein. He was also in an unused story draft that was published as a novel where Data gets uh, sent back in time and ends up becoming his apprentice, and then Da Vinci uses Data as the template for Vitruvian Man. That's kind of a neat thought. Yes. Uh, and then in Voyager, uh, the actor John Rhys Davies plays him in multiple episodes where he is in the holodeck and serves as kind of a conscience and sounding board for Captain Janeway. Okay. I, so. I have started my way through the Voyager series. I have not gotten there yet, obviously, but I now have something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked a little bit about the book and movie, The Da Vinci Code, by yep. Dan Brown. Uh, that one dealing with The Last Supper. Right. So there, if you haven't read it or seen the movie, it's very interesting. It goes into that whole conspiracy theory. Right. And and if you're if you haven't read or seen it, I recommend to watch the movie first, and then read the book because if you read the book first, like I did, um, the movie cuts some of it out. But the movie is very good. Don't get me wrong. Yes. It's a very good movie, but the book is just that much better, in my opinion. So, uh, other TV shows uh, that he's been on, uh, he was on My Favorite Martian, he was on an episode of Bewitched, he's been in episodes and the novels for Doctor Who. Okay, that so, makes sense. Go yeah. figure, yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of animated series, there was Time Quest, never heard of it myself. Yeah, no. Um, the Tick, where it was uh, Da Vinci and his time-traveling commandos. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dilbert. Okay. Futurama. Yeah, that makes sense. And Family Guy. Family Guy. Yes. So there are also two live action shows featuring him. Uh, one was a BBC series called Leonardo that deals with him as a teenager. Okay. And then there's another one called Da Vinci's Demons. Interesting. Yes. Does that have to? Do you have you seen that one? I have not. So, I wonder if that I has anything to do with his uh, supposed homosexuality or anything like that. I don't. I, I mean, yeah. it's just I'm spitballing here. I have no idea. Yep. But me neither. Uh, but probably the um, contemporary cultural incarnation of him that I love the most is in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Okay, which, as you know, I have not read yet. And so, as Chad knows, I've read all of them. Yes. Yeah, so why don't you uh, fill us in? Okay, well, uh, Discworld is a series uh, designed by uh, the late Sir Terry Pratchett. It, basically, he uses it to poke fun at how badly we screw things up in our real world. And there's a character, uh, Leonard of Quorum, who is described as the kind of absent-minded genius who will take a, a blank piece of paper and draw a perfect picture of a rose, including the drops of dew on it in the morning, and then, because he was bored in the margins, design a machine uh, designed to rain balls of molten sulfur uh, down upon a city a mile away, including a helpful numbered list of parts and instructions for how to make the balls of molten sulfur. Nice. Yes. Well, at least he's... So, he's considerate. Considerate and thorough. Yes. And um, 
he has a patron, the patrician of the city of Ankh-Morpork, which is his representation of London. Okay. And essentially, the, the patrician keeps him locked up, but he's described as the kind of genius who is really impossible to lock up because he spends all his time in his head anyways. Okay. And that as long as you give him enough uh, paper and pencils and charcoal and wood and glue and stuff, might not even realize that nobody has come to see him for a couple of months. And in one of the, the books, especially, it describes how he's so afraid that people are going to take his inventions and use them to hurt people that he actually builds a series of booby traps outside his own prison, to from which he escapes whenever he wants because he's a genius. But he builds all these booby traps to stop people from coming to try to spring him. Okay. There you go. I yeah. like my silent solitude. Leave me alone. Yes. Um, but one of the things that Pratchett does with the character that it is just so endearing and so typical of Pratchett is that there is a hole in Leonard's genius. Okay. And it you kind of touched on it a little in your earlier bit, but it comes to naming things. For example, Leonard designs a submarine to go check out um, this particular island that rises up from the bottom of the ocean periodically. Okay. And he, he says that... Well, since I've designed this machine to submerge in a marine environment, I call it the device for going under the water safely and not drowning and coming back. <laughs> I like that. Yes. So um, he, he has multiple inventions, uh, very similar to da Vinci. The helicopter, the um, hang glider. He actually invents the first gun. Okay. Which causes a whole lot of trouble. Guns um, tend to do that. Yes. Not as much trouble as bullets cause, though. True. And uh, at one point, he is sent out to capture two members of the city guard to go on a, a special mission. And so he holds them up at firework point. Basically, he designs a, a Roman candle rocket. Okay. And he, he points it at them. And then they accidentally set it off, and it goes, like, it doesn't have fins or anything on it to stabilize it, so it goes flying off here, there, and everywhere. And so he runs away with them before the person whose shop they destroyed can come out and catch them. Nice. And then as they're running away, he takes out a notebook and sketches an improved design for the rocket. And then when they get back to his shop, he starts building it and has them hold various pieces of it. And then when he finishes putting it together, he takes it back from them and then holds them at Gunpoint again. Nice, nice. <laughs> All right, so I think we're going to draw this one to a close. Um, if you're still with us, this is a, this is an exceedingly long one for us, but uh, hopefully you stuck through. Hopefully it was interesting and informative for you. Um, but you can let us know. Uh, send us an email. You can reach us at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can find us on Facebook at wanttohearsomethinginteresting. Either way, we look forward to hearing from you, and until next month, thank you for listening.